This is Here There Be Dragons. I'm your host, Jess Myers. Last episode, we talked about French hipsters, or bobos, and the anxiety around being perceived as one. This episode, we're going to expand our ideas about how people want to be perceived in public space. The stereotype of Parisians being stylish and glamorous trendsetters has a long history. But the more you know the city, the more you see how style can be contentious. It often dances along the fault lines of gender, class, religion, race, and sexuality. How people dress is directly influenced by how they want to be treated in public space. The way that you're perceived in public space can play a huge part in the way that you're treated. In the U.S., a recent example is all the different laws trying to ban transgender people from using the bathroom that matches their gender identity. These laws don't overtly aim to control the way that people express their gender identity. Instead, gender identities of trans people are perceived as a security issue. The argument behind the laws, as you probably know, is that trans women may assault other women when they use women's restrooms. What these laws suggest is that trans women are potential criminals. And by doing so, it essentially gives any establishment with restrooms the right to police not crime, but identity and the expression of identity. The identities and styles that are similarly policed in France have a lot to do with the politics we've discussed in past episodes. One example is headscarves worn by observant Muslim women. Since France is a secular state, the law bans wearing religious symbols in state-owned public space. In 2004, the French government passed a law that banned all religious attire in public schools. However, many saw this ban as targeting the headscarves that observant Muslim women wear. Just as with trans women and bathrooms, this ban emboldened many French citizens to see Muslim women as criminals and foreigners when wearing these headscarves. Esther, who's a young Jewish woman from the 7th arrondissement, has noticed this shift. One day on the metro, she witnessed a Muslim woman being harassed for wearing a veil. For example, I saw a scene in the subway that really shocked me. There was a woman who was completely veiled. She had just a slit for her eyes. And a guy, I don't know if he was homeless or what, but he came up to her and was yelling, saying, we don't do that here. It's a republic. We don't do that. And she was so shocked that she felt obliged to take off her veil. Even though the fact that she was wearing a full veil made me feel a little tense, this man's reaction shocked me so much. It was so much more violent, so much more aggressive. I thought that it was really very insulting. It made me realize how much this woman had to suffer interactions like this. This mistrust has unfortunately increased with the rise of Islamic terrorist attacks, which many people associate in an excessive way with all of Islam. Any woman who wears the veil is going to be seen as a supporter of the Islamic State. Well, this is obviously not the case. Many French citizens blur the difference between state-owned public space and public space in general. Wearing a headscarf or any kind of religious symbol in the metro is allowed. But Esther says that with the recent terror attacks, some people refuse to see the difference between practicing Islam and terrorism. 
You can wear the veil and still represent French identity. But there are people who don't think that. We have the impression that our identities conflict. Franck, who's from a very homogenous and Catholic town, was surprised the first time he saw men wearing a kippah, a small cap that observant Jewish men wear, or women wearing the hijab. La première fois, quand... First time as a kid when you see a kippah, or the hair of Jewish men, first time when you see a veil. It's true that it wasn't part of my culture. We just saw it on TV. But to see it in real life, first few times, I didn't know how to react. Today, I think these external signs aren't a problem for me when it's paired with a normal attitude. A girl who has a veil but is laughing at their friends, she's still a young girl. A child who wears a kippah and runs in the street like a child doesn't bother me. France's history as a Catholic country plays into its views of secularism. In fact, the French word for secularism, laïcité, stems from the same root as the word for layperson. Secularism is defined by not holding an ordained position. So in Catholicism, there are strict rules about who's a layperson and who's ordained. That means that nuns can cover their heads in public because it's a uniform as much as it is a religious garment. However, in religions like Protestantism, Islam, and Judaism, the line between lay and ordained can be blurred. Practitioners can have roles in religious service, and those who represent the religion, like pastors, rabbis, and imams, can marry and have children, like lay people. But because these roles are not official by a Catholic framework, their symbolic garments become a problem. They can't fit into France's rigid conceptual framework for religion. In previous episodes, we talked about communities and minorities in France. We've also mentioned how some communities are allowed to exist and be visible, while others are not. Franck also explained how the nationwide debate about same-sex marriage showcased the double standard that exists between communities. This led him to question his own community. I have a lot of doubts about my own religion, especially with the demonstrations against same-sex marriage. I thought it was very aggressive of French Catholics to demonstrate their religion like that. It didn't go over well with me at all. I thought it was extremely violent. I don't think that they realize the violence that it can instigate, the target that they put on their backs. They feel totally protected. And I think that if Jews or Muslims demonstrated like that, there would have been very violent reactions against them, physically violent. French Catholics like Franck feel free to express their religion without consequences. But for others like Esther, having their religion identified in public can be cause for anxiety. Here she talks about Baobès, a diverse neighborhood in the north of Paris. So in Barbès, there's a kind of hostility towards women. I don't feel safe as a girl and as a Jew. I've already been stopped several times in the street by people who've asked me, hey you, are you Jewish? And who will try to talk to me like that? It's never something well-intentioned, especially in France, where we have witnessed the rise of anti-Semitic acts during the last 10 years. So I know it's something they can read on my face. I know it doesn't always attract good things. So that's why I try to avoid places where I know there's hostility. The original ban on public religious attire was enacted as a means to protect French secularism. But the issue has taken on another meaning after the terror attacks of 2015 and 2016. It's been framed as a security measure. In the summer of 2016, a terrorist attack in Nice was perpetrated by a man. 
As a response, officials from nearby beach towns in the south of France decided to ban the burkini, a modest wetsuit that observant Muslim women swim in. I spoke with Professor Mohamed Mack, whose book, Sexagon, Muslims, France, and the Sexualization of National Culture, talks about how the policing of gender and sexuality and the policing of national identity intersect. My name is Mohamed Mack. I teach at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, my book is called uh, Sexagon, Muslims, France, and the Sexualization of National Culture. Um, and it talks about how um, today in France, um, Muslims, Arabs, minorities, immigrants and children of immigrants um, have their Frenchness and integration in France judged according to whether they possess the right attitudes about gender and sexuality, more so than um, traditional means of measuring integration like uh, civic aptitude or uh, linguistic integration. In our interview, he talked about the ways that the surveillance of minorities, like women who wear hijab or the burkini, are an extension of security politics. Minorities are always overexposed. What they do is always under scrutiny, especially if you're an immigrant or a child of immigrants. Uh, you're expected to disclose everything about your private life as a form kind of of surveillance. When we had the whole episode of the, you know, the uh, burkini scandal, uh, it brought up uh, counterexamples. It brought up, what are you going to do about uh, nuns on the beach, nuns who are, who are bathing? Uh, are they going to be uh, subject to a police identity check with weapons in the same way, right? Um, what are you going to do with people at ski resorts? Or are these uh, posh places, you know, ski resorts where people, you know, are notoriously anonymous and cover themselves? Um, and sometimes, you know, it shows that a lot of these laws are unenforceable. But it also kind of brings up latent class and race elements because, of course, uh, ski resorts and nunneries are not places where the threat of communitarianism uh, looms, which is interesting because, you know, individualism might be important um, when there is a threat of communitarianism. But I would say overall in France, uh, you know, assimilation is important. You know, there's competing pressures. Right. So on the one hand, you're asked to to distinguish yourself uh, from your community and become an individual and sort of make it in the city center and and leave a kind of environment that is going to turn you into a clone of some sort. Um, and on the other hand, uh, you know, when you are in the city center, there is a pressure for you to assimilate to uh, French norms the way that a woman dresses, be it in religious attire or short skirts, has historically carried cultural and moral significance in public space. If they're being too modest, then maybe they're expressing an identity that's perceived as being in conflict with French national identity. But if they're wearing something too revealing, then maybe they're flouting a traditional and historically conservative culture. These constraints leave a very narrow path of freedom for French women to express themselves. The policing of women's clothing in general was a concern for many of the women that I spoke to. They felt like their choices of clothing would encourage others to treat them disrespectfully or even violently. Steffi, a young black freelancer living in Barbès, a black neighborhood in the north of Paris, echoed some of Esther's feelings about the neighborhood. Uh, Aujourd'hui, j'habite à Barbès. 
Clairement, je sais Today que I live in Barbès, and clearly, I know that if I go out, I won't be left alone. So, there are two solutions. Either you put on the outfit you want to put on, you know that you're going to hear little remarks, so you deal with the fact that you'll have to react to these comments. Or, you want to be left alone, so you don't put the outfit you have planned to put on. You put on a thing that'll pass anywhere, so people won't piss you off. Aurélie, a lawyer from Reunion Island, moved to Many Montons because of her experiences in neighborhoods around Barbès. Porte de la Chapelle changes at night, the area around Goudor especially. I wouldn't hang out too much over there. I don't like being there all by myself. I don't feel safe. I can't dress the way I want. I lived there for a month and I didn't like it since there were a lot of drug dealers in front of my building. I couldn't get back at 2 o'clock in the morning dressed in shorts or a skirt. It was impossible. I know that if I go out to the 18th or the Goudor anyway, there are only men in the street. When you're the only woman, you're watched. Everyone is looking at you. And it's not nice. You feel unsafe. That's why I avoid going there. Evelyne, who works at an architecture firm in the Marais, a central district in Paris, believes, like Aurélie, that women have to pay attention not just to where they are, but when and who they're with. I think that depending on the neighborhood, you still have to pay attention to what you wear, especially being a woman, because people are still likely to stare at you. I still wear dresses, still wear heels, but it's true that I work in the Marais, which is a central district of Paris. If I had to go to Pigalle, I might not wear dresses or I'd put on flats, depending on the neighborhood. You still have to pay attention to this dress code, which is a shame. You also have to pay attention to the people that you're with. I mean, that if you're in a big group, you say to yourself, I'm not risking anything, so you can dress the way you want. But if you're just two women, it's true that you have to pay more attention, because two women in the street who are well-dressed, people are more likely to stare at them, like men in the street. You don't want to be bothered, and you don't want to be told that you're provoking people. So you have to be careful what you wear depending on where you're going. For Isabel, a 49-year-old health professional living in the eastern banlieue, Noisy-le-Sec, it's the people in public space that really set off alarm bells. I'm really vigilant. There are places in my city where my guard is up more, the way the train station, well, a stretch of road between the station and home because of this atmosphere at the station where there are lots of young people who hang out, people who are not necessarily from the city but who hang there. That's something that puts me on alert, so I'll be very vigilant on this part of my way home and mainly in the evening. The neighborhood you're in, what time it is, how you're dressed, who you're with, who's around, are all indicators that women constantly pay attention to when navigating the city. However, the security response around things like catcalling and the harassment of women in public space is deeply coded in identity as well. Catcalling is often seen as a problem pervaded by working-class communities and communities of color. Although many women cited areas around Barbès, harassment exists everywhere in Paris. Steffi told me about the difference between her neighborhood Barbès and Saint-Germain, a wealthy, touristy neighborhood in southern Paris. Le mec de Barbès, il va pas dire la même chose qu'un mec à Saint-Germain. The guy from Barbès is not going to tell you the same thing as the guy in Saint-Germain. 
They'll both comment on your outfit, but not in the same way. You'll have one who will say, Oh la la, you're so pretty, can I get your number? And you have another who will tell you, Oh la la, you ought to cover up, you'll catch cold, mademoiselle. The, you're so pretty, that's in the popular neighborhoods. If a boy walks past me in the street and thinks I'm pretty, he'll tell me. He'll tell me in kind of an ugly way. He won't be respectful, but he'll just tell me. It's pretty clear. In the trendy neighborhoods, they'll do the whole show of being respectful. It's paternalizing. I mean, when someone who doesn't know you from Adam says to you, oh la la, you have to cover yourself, you'll catch cold. You want to tell him, I'm minding my business. I'm not your child. You don't pay my bills. I don't really see why you're worried about how I'm dressed. There's no reason for him to do that. As men see women's discomfort in public space, how do they see their role in these environments? Here's Leopold, a 30-year-old journalist and editor. It's also the differentiation of the way men and women might experience the city. We should even be more precise than that. We should be saying almost gender-conforming men and and the rest of people. On the one hand, those are realities that we cannot deny. But on the other hand, the way women might feel in certain areas of the city have become very much uh, an excuse for many politicians and journalists to entice a certain amount of hyper-securization uh, measures and racist discourses and sort of police targeting uh, that it might involve. In Professor Mohammed Mack's book, he defines a term called sexual nationalism that describes what's behind Leopold's unease with the use of women's experiences to push political agendas. What is sexual nationalism? It's when you expect of others or of recent arrivals to your country um, a level of uh, progressivism around gender and sexuality that you could not reasonably reasonably expect um, from your own people or uh, from the nation. And it has, and in in a way, it's a little bit cynical because. People uh, who invoke this kind of sexual nationalism are not really invested in women's rights or in gay rights, but they are invested in it because it provides the best tool to marginalize or further exclude um, new immigrants or uh, minorities that are already in the country who may have already put in the work to be accepted as French or be accepted as European. Leopold and Professor Mack raise an interesting point. Do politicians really have women's safety at heart, or are they using women's experiences to benefit their own agendas or to fuel rhetoric that targets certain communities? These conversations about women's experiences made me wonder about gender more broadly in public space. Do men feel similar constraints and pressures in public space? Does their self-expression tangle with these cultural conflicts? Anthony, a 26-year-old stock manager, talks about le regard, the look, a constant pressure of evaluation and judgment that we both give and receive in public space. Many of the residents I spoke to explained that this look can be particularly heavy in Paris. On the one hand, I'm black and gay, so people staring at me is something that happens all the time. I can tell you that I pay less attention to it, and I also play the game since I look at people too. I overplay the game. It's a thing that's never bothered me more than that, this sort of game of impressions and looks. I think that sometimes I might be looking at other people. It's a bit of a cliché and a kind of psychosis. 
sometimes to quote unquote protect myself, if I ever feel threatened like on a metro, I'll look threatening if that makes any sense. Alexandre, a 25-year-old French-Filipino comedian, moved to Paris from Indonesia for school. I'll have my head down and like I'll put a hoodie on and just like, I am of no value, don't look at me <laughs> kind of a way. Because, you know, sometimes, it's just as I said earlier, just like groups of rowdy men who just feel compelled to just scream and stuff. You're just like, okay, just look threatening or don't look like you're vulnerable. So I was at a comedy show and I had like jeans and like a, a soccer jersey on. And this girl, she was just like, why do you wear that? And I go, uh, because reasons. And then she was like, oh, well... It looks like you have the style of, like, a racaille. I was like, that's pretty fucked up. It, I don't know, it, it, it kind of shocked me, like, because she was dressed nicely, but regardless of how she dressed, like, why she'd feel compelled to say that. Alexandre brings up a word that's been charged with political significance since the early 2000s. Racaille is the French word for thug. After the 2005 revolts in the banlieue that we talked about in episode one, Racaille was the word used to describe young people who participated. Nicolas Sarkozy, the former French president, famously used this word to describe the kinds of people who would be at the receiving end of his zero-tolerance policing policies. It's a way of calling someone violent and worthless, a menace to society, and is typically directed at men, especially men of color. Meanings of the word have morphed over time, but it still remains a politically charged term. Banlu residents have organized against the violent perception of their neighborhood for decades. This perception can lead to instances of police brutality. In late 2016 and early 2017, this organizing was even reported in the U.S. after the death of Adama Traoré in police custody and the brutal sexual assault of Theo during an identity check. These instances explain the ways in which men have to balance their perception in public space being careful to manage whether they're being read as threatening or vulnerable. But we all have to balance multiple gazes in public, from the police to our own neighbors. Dani, a 31-year-old insurance agent, talked a bit about the construction of masculinity in her neighborhood in Epinay-sur-Seine, a banlieue to the north of Paris. Growing up trans there, she says that she used certain dress codes to be perceived in different ways. Je, je, je suis né homme et donc forcément je suis exposé tout de suite à, à ce code. I was born a man and I had to be exposed to this code right away because I have to deal with the so-called combat of the gaze. Which of the two you will yield and will lower your gaze and submit to the other man? There's this quote-unquote cockfight that you have to fight. Then there's also the balance of power. What will I let out of my mouth so that the person in front of me will say, okay, that boy is dangerous? At the time, it was less focused on religion. It was much more on the bullshit we did in the Banlu. I mean, stealing cars, burning cars, robbery, drugs. It's trivialized. You really have to do it to be recognized because otherwise you'll find yourself eaten alive in the Banlu. And as a man, it's really very dangerous, especially in the difficult Banlus. I preferred avoiding all that. Private schools taught me differently. I saw things differently thanks to my friends with different perspectives. I was just playing with the way I dressed. My style made all the difference. It really allowed me to get through without any injuries. I think I'm really blessed. I tried to swim with these sharks without becoming a shark myself. 
I mainly wear black. I avoid colors in the band loop. That was my thing. Black, gray, blue, those were my colors. I haven't had too many problems, despite my sexuality, my gender, and everything. For Franck, who grew up in a small white working class city far from Paris, it's been tough navigating social classes in the city. He recalls being harassed by a homophobic man in the street right when France was debating same-sex marriage. Once in Bastille, I went out to dinner with a friend. It had to be half past midnight on a Saturday night. I was dressed very normally in jeans, a jacket, nothing extravagant. I had a bag, a plastic shopping bag with plenty of colorful stripes. You could see it as the gay pride flag. It's a feel-good bag. So a man comes up and he grabbed me by the collar, telling me, I'm sure you're a fag. Fags, I want them all dead. And the man wasn't even drunk or anything. We're in the middle of legalizing same-sex marriage. I managed to escape. He was following me with his buddies. He said, yeah, we're going to fuck you up, fag. So I realized the strategies I could use, typically taking off my tie, always staying close to a group. In some neighborhoods, I try to wear pretty neutral things, which is kind of a shame. I realize that this bag that I like so much can be seen as a signal. Sometimes I don't care. I use my bag. And sometimes I take my black bag. It's in the details of style. I take off my tie. I even take off my jacket. Just dark slacks and a shirt. And it works everywhere. Both men and women, gay and straight, religious or not, of many racial identities, use clothes as a means of signaling how they'd like to be treated in public space. As Franck just said, this might mean concealing certain parts of your identity through your style of dress. Moena came to realize how little the way that people dress had to do with where they came from. In the beginning, we thought that when we were in the Marais, we had to be stylish, hipster, fashionista types. Otherwise, when we were in the 13th, we could wear our overalls and disgusting shoes. But the more you grow up and the more you become Parisian, the more you realize that people don't care and that it's just an illusion. Because you realize that none of the people who go to the Marais to have a drink actually live in the Marais. They all live in Montreuil. In the 20th, they're just young, stylish assholes like you. And on the other hand, people who really live in the Marais, they just get off work, go shopping, and go home. But it's not the people who live in these places who actually bring life to them. There's a difference between what you think of a neighborhood and which people kind of perform this neighborhood. I don't think it's a problem to go to an opening in the Marais without having these codes. Legitimacy actually comes from something else. It comes from your attitude, your references, and just your interest in being in that place. But so it's interesting because it's really the work of self-definition. Many of the people that I spoke to for the show told me, sometimes repeatedly, that Parisians really move around their city. From the rich west to the working class east, there are jobs and homes and hangouts to get to. That means wearing clothes where you blend in, or expressing yourself and taking a risk. But as Moena was saying, there are other means of signaling legitimacy. They don't have to clash with traditions, but update them. This summer, I was taking the bus between two banlieues, Montreuil and Bagnolet. I saw a kid running to beat the bus to the bus stop. It was almost sunset during Ramadan, a holy month for observant Muslims, 
And it was the middle of the Euro Cup, and France was hosting the tournament. The kid was 16, 17, and wearing a long collared shirt called a jalaba, but also a pair of Air Force Ones and a hoodie with Les Bleus, the French national soccer team, emblazoned all over it. When you think about it, this outfit is very French. There are few places in the world where you'll find a teenager so fluid and so fluent between different traditions and pop cultures. Only the history of France, with its colonial past, its Western influences, and its faith in an unwieldy but talented national sports team, could have assembled this kid, this cultural cyborg. So as much as we have to point out the codes that confine us, we should also know that there are ways of subverting those codes and moving beyond them. Some people do it simply because they're born to do so. In the next episode, we'll be talking about a different set of constraints. Not the ones we put on our bodies, but the ones that we put in our streets. The borders that emerge in our cities and how we cross them daily. Thanks for listening. This has been Here There Be Dragons. I, as always, am your host, Jess Myers. Thank you for everyone who signed up for our newsletter. Uh, You can do that on our website if you're interested. And thanks also to everyone who's commented so far. Send us your comments at htbdpodcast at gmail.com. That's htbdpodcast, one word, at gmail.com. Or on Twitter at dragons underscore podcast, so we can incorporate them in the last episode. A huge thank you to my sponsors at MIT Council for the Arts, to Adelie Pajman-Ponte, who produces this show, and to Corey Lee Jacobs, who writes all the original music. Subscribe and rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And for more Here There Be Dragons, check out our website at htbdpodcast.com. And join us next time for more stories of fear, identity, and urban life.